I'm Christy Gupton, and I'm an Employee Benefits Advisor. Welcome to Healthcare Solutions, a podcast where we explore innovations in healthcare, cost containment strategies, and employee well-being. We'll discuss every way possible to turn our healthcare system back into the kind of environment where patient care comes first and costs go down as a result. I invite you to join me to hashtag Let's Fix Healthcare. Well, 2020 was quite a year, wasn't it? Healthcare Solutions Podcast went noticeably silent last year. We didn't record a single podcast. But 2021 is here, and we're back in the podcast business. So welcome to Season 2 of Healthcare Solutions. We'll hear a couple of sequels from guests like Carl Schusler and Vinay Patel, and we'll have new guests like Dr. Keith Smith and Dr. Kristen Dickerson. We'll even hear from award-winning investigative journalist Marshall Allen, who will inspire you to never pay the first bill. So thank you for rejoining our audience, and remember, together, we can hashtag Let's Fix Healthcare. On this week's podcast, I sit down with Scott Ray and Heath Potter of Six Degrees Health. Embarrassingly, I have to admit, I recorded this podcast with them a while ago, and I never got it published. But everything we discussed way back then is still very relevant today. Six Degrees Health has its roots in the world of organ transplants and centers of excellence, but has grown into a world-class cost containment solution that no self-funded employer should be without. You should check out Six Degrees online and listen to their Fireside Chat series featuring guests like Dave Chase of Health Rosetta and Ryan Work of the Self-Insurance Institute of America. For now, enjoy this engaging discussion with my friends Scott Ray and Heath Potter from Six Degrees. From last week's conversation... We can be proactive and start to teach employees. That that's the piece that I'm trying to get into myself with some new clients that I've just gotten. Is I've spent the time helping to evolve the thinking of the decision makers, <laughs> and they've kind of been on this journey. Mm-hmm. So now it's time to help the employees that are members on their plan go through the same journey right. and learn what they you know everything they ever thought to ask but never knew how <laughs> about the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So what do employees need to know when their employer comes to them and says, we're, we're changing uh, our health plan and we've decided to go without a network? I mean, fear must strike in the heart of an employee who, who says, wait a minute, there's not going to be a, a big insurance company <laughs> logo on my card anymore. What are yeah. you doing to me? Look, let's talk about what employees need to hear to understand this is actually not the end of the world it's actually the opening of a brave new world yeah um i think it's a a couple things not just going to a non-network approach you go to an employer group that's talking about going Mm self-funding there's you know that's that's phase one of this there's you know you're, you're taking a survey because blue cross won't give over the information necessary for stop loss to underwrite it, right? So it's all change. It's just how you manage that change and the communication that's made to the employee. So I think if you're very transparent, as long as we're going to use that word, uh, I think you got to be transparent with the employee and help them understand what this means to them. Yeah. You know, whether you're going self-funding or whether you're going the next step and going unbundled and, and no network, is explaining to them what this means to them. 
Um, and there's a lot of benefits to it. You know, sure. right now, if you're having to run a high deductible plan, you're able to reduce that cost to where maybe it's covered fully. You know, that's we've seen a lot of our groups that are able to do that, where they're no longer having to contribute because there's so much savings involved. That's that's a huge benefit to that family. Or maybe instead of just covering the employee, now you have family covered. Right. Um, and then the ability to go no network. I think once you get past the, well, what does that mean? Well, now you can use that doctor across town that you've always wanted to use. Um, you know, and there's no out of network because there's no network. Mm-hmm. So those are, I think you have to you look through the education. And one of the things that we try diligently to do is to educate folks like yourself, you know, that are communicating with the employer um, and give them the tools that they need, whether it be videos or digital media uh, or paper documents. You know, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of employers out there and their employees react to and, and use different types of medias to, to get that information. And now for more with Scott Ray and Heath Potter of Six Degrees. Yeah, and, and one of the, I totally agree with what Heath has said, education is a big part of it. Um, what we've found, it's surprising to me um, how a lot of patients who belong to employer-sponsored health plan, they don't even understand that their employer is the health plan. That's true. Because the the employer has been renting a network from uh-huh. a Blue Cross or United, what have you, and they've always seen that as their insurance company, even though it's not. Right. And so uh, you take that combined with the fact that a lot of employees have trouble understanding even the difference between co-insurance and co-pays and deductibles. Um, and then to expect them to understand that one hospital can charge three million for a heart transplant, and the other can charge five hundred thousand. There's it just blows people's minds. Right. And so there's a lot of education that goes on. Change again is a big part of it. I, th- I think there's a lot of irony here because when we went from indemnity health insurance to managed care, people freaked out and said, <laughs> "How dare you restrict who I can go see?" And now we're saying you can go anywhere you want, and they're like, "How dare you take my network away?" So. <laughs> It's, it's, change isn't easy. First. It's not. Uh, it sure isn't. But unfortunately, uh, I guess things are just cyclical in that, in that story. Uh, yeah. you, you, you go through these cycles, and now we're in the part of the story where we've reached these, this price point that no one can handle anymore. And so yeah. out of necessity... We need to cycle back to the basics and, and sort of get back to fundamentals. Um, like my buddy Carl Schuessler loves to say, the Marcus Welby days. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and, you know, one point I want to make here, um, you know, as Heath mentioned, a lot of us here at Six Degrees have decades of experience in the transplant space. Mm-hmm. Um, before Six Degrees, even a lot of us worked together in that space. And I think that the... <clears throat> the transplant specialty care networks that exist for employers' uh, self-funded health plans, they've been around for 30 years. And, you know, we talk about networks today as being broken, but it, it, always, it hasn't always been that way. <clears throat> and I think the transplant specialty networks, they're a great case study of what can go wrong with networks. And if you go back to 
when these specialty transplant networks started in the uh, 90s, I guess, um, the idea was that, hey, transplants are really complex procedures. They're very expensive. And there's a, a correlation in, in the transplant space for hospitals and doctors that perform a high number of these procedures. There's a good correlation with quality. And it, it makes sense. Like if you, if you have to replace a head gasket on a Porsche 911 and you do it 200 times, you're probably going to be more efficient, more effective than the guy does it once a year, mm -hmm. right? Same concept in transplants. So what some smart people did is they said, why don't we go out there and figure out who the best hospitals are? And we'll go to them and we'll build these case rate contracts where, you know, if you need a liver transplant, we're going to pay you $100,000 and it's a done deal. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what you bill me. We're just paying you $100,000 and, and we're, we're good. And the hospitals did it because they're like, this is great. This is what we want. We want steerage. We want you to incentivize your plan members to come to me. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's a phenomenal idea. That's what we're doing. It's you know, a give and take. Yes. Uh, even with the reference-based pricing plan, we want to find hospitals that are interested in partnering with our clients. And I think that's a misconception out in, um, you know, in the, in the space, especially in my state, in North Carolina, like I said, get very heated. But it almost feels like the hospitals and the, health, the state health plan have this... Um, us and them mentality like we're we have to be adversaries with each other and i'm so happy that you know we've got some partners in in this space who says we don't have to be adversaries we can this is an opportunity to right. work together right i think some of that comes from some of the early models in this area you know they they came up with a model that was kind of a pain defend legally backed uh i would also put in there that I think it was very profitable for them to generate that model because they're collecting pre-legal, right? Um, and so you kind of almost have to create the storyline that makes everybody adversaries so you can justify that expense. Yeah. Um, I think we've, we have proven that that's not necessary. We can bring a different approach. And again, this goes back to our heritage of doing transplant centers of excellence and other mm -hmm. COE networks where, uh, you know, for a fair and reasonable price, we can put additional people into your beds and, and our members then get that for a reasonable price. So it's, it's, a, it's a different, it's a shift in mindset that allows us to do it for a much lower price point as well. Um, and so I think it, a lot of that just goes back to the early models of reference-based pricing that, that was built on that, that methodology. Mm -hmm. And if you look at our block of business, we actually have a lot of hospital systems that do reference-based pricing with us. And in exchange, we also get contractual arrangements on a global reference base so we can send people to them. So mm -hmm. it's this mutually beneficial relationship. It's not adversarial in, in any way. Right? I hope the hospitals that are crying a river in my state will listen to that uh, line of thinking and, and come around to the, the realization that, that this doesn't have to be... Um, a fight. Mm -hmm. It can be an opportunity to work together. And and let's face it, the North Carolina State Health Plan has 750,000 members on it. And those people need someone 
um, to call a spade a spade here and say, look, there's these numbers of lives on the line. Can we just not all get along mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and figure this out instead of just having a standoff? Yeah. And I think it's important also to, to realize that <clears throat> the, the problem with the hospital inefficiencies is not going to be fixed overnight. Um, if you have, you know, like I said, in some high-cost markets, you, you can look at hospitals that are reporting costs far in excess of what other hospital systems do. And that's probably really scary from a CFO's perspective to... Uh, to realize that the payment model is shifting mm-hmm. and your your control over costs isn't. And so, you know, it, it, it but it needs to happen yeah. because healthcare is, is bankrupting um, our country. I mean, it's, it's, it's out of control. It is. It's, um, I, I'm sorry to keep using this state health plan issue in my state as an example, but it's, um, it's just very timely. You know, I, um, I have a friend whose son um, was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at 6. He's 13 now. And they, their family is on the state health plan because uh, her husband is a, um, a professor at the local community college. And that's all part of the state health plan. So she was telling me about the struggles that they have just affording his insulin every month. Mm-hmm. And I kept... During our conversation, I kept thinking, you know, if if the state health plan would do would have a smarter method about paying for the big things, mm-hmm. then it might be easier to afford the small things. I mean, let's face it, insulin is it's it's not fixed by any stretch of the imagination. It's still a, a major. Um, issue in health plans. It costs too much for what you're getting, but it's still small um, in comparison to, you know, a heart transplant or knee surgeries or back surgeries or all the kind of things that need to happen in a population with that many people on it. Um, But we're, we're talking about, um, you know, spending time managing costs so that so that everyone can have a chance to have, you know, the right health care. Right. And using sort of some of the things that Dave Chase is talking about recently, about the way that um, health care is, is uh, devastating whole communities. Mm-hmm. You know, when, um, you know, let's say when a local government, a, a, a county government, say, um, overspends on their health plan, that has a, a market effect on how many sheriff's deputies they can put out on the road. So I think if we if we um, don't start talking about the global effect of something as simple as not paying more than a certain percentage of Medicare for um, a planned procedure, then we get lost. Mm-hmm. And hey, how did we get here? How did we get to the point where you know we we can't afford school buses in our school system anymore, or we can't you know um, we can't have some of the the normal things that we we thought everything was covered um, and it's because healthcare took um, took everything and, and yeah. just made it too complicated yeah and I, and I too you know if you look at the culprits and in, in where we are today I think a lot of the blame also deserves to be pointed at the middlemen in healthcare 
right. Um, if you look at the stock prices of of these companies that operate PBMs and, and networks and the such, um, they're not bringing value, frankly. They're not the ones that are doing the work okay. on the patients. They're making a ton of money. And, you know, I brought up the, the health or the transplant network early as earlier as uh, a great example of how a network can be positive, but I didn't, I didn't kind of tell you what that has turned into, which is something that's it has a very different value proposition today. So 30 years ago, you were talking about a handful of hospitals with these great contracts. Today, just like other networks have become bloated, they've contracted with everyone. You know, if you look, but roughly 90% of the solid organ transplants that happen in the U.S. happen at a hospital that has been designated a centers of excellence by some network out there. Mm-hmm. So it's been watered down. And when you look at the contracts, now the majority of contracts still have those great case rates, but they also have this nasty thing now called an outlier provision right. that basically says, sure, I'll give you a $100,000 case rate for that liver transplant, but if my bill charges go over 200000 now you have to pay a percentage of that. And so it's become a game of smoke and mirrors. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't blame the hospitals because it's like the value proposition that existed when the network started of partnership and steering members is gone. Now it's, they can pretty much go wherever they want to. So as a hospital, why should I give you a good deal for that? What was the, two years ago, we did a study, and of all the major centers of excellence, transplant networks, almost 95% of the U.S. transplants happened at one of those that's been designated as a, and I've got centers my fingers excellence. in the air quotes, yeah. centers of excellence. It, it's just a more marketing term than anything at this point. Yeah, I mean, there's, a lot of those big networks are 150, 170 transplant centers strong, and... I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's around 250 total transplant centers in the whole country. Oh. And so that extra... So all those networks are almost identical. Well, right. And that extra 75 or so, those are just tiny little kidney transplant hospitals scattered across the U.S. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking... Most of the, the, the heart transplants, lung transplants, livers, bone marrows, they're all included in these networks. Same thing happened with primary networks. You know, they all started with a great idea yeah. of why don't we, uh, why don't we kind of partner with a provider? We'll get a better deal. That's a great idea, mm-hmm. but the middlemen get greedy over the years and they want to grow their um, their footprint. So we're I think we're resetting right now, and it, I think it's just important that we don't make the same mistake that we did over the last. Decade. Yep. Um, two, decades. Two decades, right. at least. Yeah. yeah, I agree. You know, the, the free market and competition, um, when it can thrive, mm-hmm. it, it, provides, um, it provides actionable items, though, on a lot of different sides, right? Back to your Florida story with... Um, the hospital that didn't want to come down any more than 20% on their negotiation for that procedure, and they ended up getting undersold by a competitor that had better quality in the first place. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, they were mad that they lost the opportunity to perform that procedure for only a 20% discount. Right. <laughs> Knowing full well, they probably would have given Abuka a bigger discount. Right. But they they got zero instead of what they, the 125000 that they actually wanted. Um, but that gives them the opportunity to go back and reflect yep. and say, okay, we, we lost a, a fair fight on price and quality. Yep. So, you know, they can, they can go back and go back to the drawing board and say, what can we do different next time? And that's how this movement keeps Absolutely. its um, inertia. Yeah, in fact, I was talking with a friend of mine who is, uh, she's retired, spent her life in managed care contracting for a hospital, and she's now retired, lives in Florida. And I, I was talking to her about this case study, and I said, you know, if this would have happened to you when you were working, would that have got the hospital's attention? And she's like, oh, yeah, definitely would have got our attention. So the reality is we're not trying to be mean and nasty. Right. We, we want to partner with that hospital, but we, will, we need to let them understand that we have the, the, the ability to provide options to our members. And so they need to be better partners and, and, you know, work with us at a reasonable price point. Right, because let's face it, like we said early on in this episode, um, we now have options. Yep. Where they might not have existed before. Right. So I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Six Degrees and the Health Rosetta have a bit of a, a partnership. And so I'd like to highlight that because I, again, I'm seeing an uptick myself in employers who are starting to look at this term health rosetta and what is this and what does it mean and, and who are these people? And, and so, you know, let's, let's talk about your relationship with the health rosetta and when uh, an employer and a health plan hires a health rosetta advisor that brings in six degrees, how that can help everybody at the table. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I look at what Health Rosetta has set out to do, and I admire them. Um, you know, it doesn't seem like it's that complicated a mission, but when you think about the environment in which they're trying to operate with <laughs> lack of transparency and, uh, you know, the big networks unwilling to provide or share information and the, all these, you know, you get into the unbundled space and all the, the different vendors that are, you know, looking to, to provide a better level of service. There's a lot of duplication and things that go on. So it's a big project that they've taken on, but ultimately they're looking to simplify healthcare, lower your cost, and improve quality, right? That, that part's simple. Mm-hmm. How do you go about doing it? That gets more complex. And I, I give them huge credit for, uh, we're obviously a part of this, but uh, of all the, the different components that they brought together, you know, they do a very good job of vetting. Um, and one of those missions is to help each one of those different vendors work seamlessly together and that alone is a a huge accomplishment and we see that within the health rosetta ecosystem and you know if you're the employer or the employer group i think you're getting a a much higher level of service from the different vendors that participate and you also have a, a much more educated advisor that you're working with and, and we see that. It's pretty obvious uh, how that works. And that collaboration, I think, amongst the vendors and the advisors and the employer are key to the success of, of doing this. And ultimately, what Six Degrees allows is that unbundled 
uh, chassis uh, that everything else can be built on. And I think one of the things that Health Rosetta likes about us is our the way we've created our fee schedule as a PEPM means that you can bring in all these other best-in-class vendors and, and build them on our chassis. And what you end up with is a, a much higher-performing health plan. Um, and obviously, it takes a, a higher-level advisor to, to help do that. And Health Rosetta helps bring all that into one in one room under one conversation and make it happen. Right. So, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add to that. No, I, I would echo everything. I think Health Rosetta is a ph- phenomenal partner. Um, and I, I really like how they've stuck to their their principles. You know, their, uh, the partners that they are selecting, um, I think they're being very careful to make sure that they're not going down the path it's going to lead right back to where we're at today. Um, you know, they're interested in making sure that a vendor can't weaponize contracts, for example, and, and hold uh, plans hostage. Uh, and, you know, it, they're, they're just doing a great job, um, and I'm really proud to be uh, affiliated with that organization. Yeah, I'd say they're in it for the right reasons. Yeah. Um, there's, I think there, there's other folks out there uh, in this industry that are more interested in the, the buck mm-hmm. than the service. Sure. And, and you don't see that with Health Rosetta. It definitely feels mission-driven, that's for sure. Yeah. And right. yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think any of us are, are in a get-rich scheme. Um, we're, we're definitely trying to evolve the system to a place where um, we have a, a fair market where all of our clients' employees can, can access what they need because ultimately that's just going to result in a happier, healthier, more productive employee. And isn't that why we offered a benefits package in the first place? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's the benefits packages of today in the status quo world that are creating employees who can't work efficiently anymore because they, they're either avoiding care mm-hmm. or they're so caught up drowning in medical bills that they can't function when they get to work yeah. or they have you know, just a number of these other social determinants of health that everyone likes to, you know, back and forth that term around when it's almost meaningless. Uh, If you're going to talk about social determinants of health, stop talking and start doing, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Yeah. Do something about it. Well, you talk about affordability for the patients. It's like, I think many years ago, I thought the high deductible health plan was, was a good idea because it's like, hey, you know, the problem with insurance is if the person doesn't have any skin in the game, they're just spending other people's money. But I've changed my opinion over the years because I realized that, you know, the, the, the worker that's making $35,000 a year and has a $5,000 deductible, uh, the reality is they don't have the $4,000 they need to go get that procedure. And so it's, it's impacting the utilization uh, or it's impacting getting people the care that they need until it turns into an emergency room visit that ends up being far more costly than it should have. Right. So, you know, we do strongly encourage our partners that, that do reference-based pricing to not pair it with a, uh, a high deductible plan. Um, 
We do have some folks that still run at high deductible, um, but it does even create problems for us because when we're trying to do deals with hospitals or settle disputes, those hospitals know their chances of collecting on that $4,000 in deductible are very low. And so it creates a lot of obstacles for us. Even on the cash pay model, you know, if you, cash pay is a great option, but one of the components of our cash pay program is both parties have to come up with the money up front. Mm -hmm. So what some of our plans will do is they'll incentivize members to use the cash pay option by eliminating or substantially lowering the deductible. Right. So, you, you know, the good employers are taking the savings from reference-based pricing and reinvesting it into their workforce. Mm -hmm. Well, in the last couple of minutes, what do you see as the future? We're, we're doing great work now, and like we said, we think 2020 is going to be a great year because that's what someone said was going to be the tipping point. So what's the future? Where do we go from here? I think it's it's going to continue. Um, more and more hospitals, I think, are starting to realize that there's an opportunity here for them. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm going to go back to my South Florida model. Um, the, the, the hospital didn't want to play nicely, was the largest system in that, in that area. Um, other hospitals are saying, hey, we'll take that volume and we can make a, a reasonable profit at a giving you a deal that's much better. And I think you're just going to start to see more and more of that. And you're always going to have, or not, I shouldn't say always, but we're still going to have to deal with some hospitals that are the, the big player, they got the big name, and they think they can control the market. Um, but if you start slowly chipping away at that and moving patients to hospitals that can provide that high-quality care at a reasonable price, eventually they're going to come around and they're going to say, all right, this doesn't work. We want to play ball. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're about. Again, we're, we're, we're about being fair and reasonable. Sure. Marilyn Bartlett did it with a whole state. Yep. We can at least try to do it in our communities. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Yep. Well, this has been a fun discussion. I really appreciate you um, being our subject matter experts for today, and I hope that those who uh, can hear the message and um, really, to me, the message of this podcast has been there's an opportunity. We don't have to be adversaries. We can actually work together on this and um, do what's best for the plan and the actual patient. Yeah. Thanks, Chrissy. We uh, appreciate you flying across the country to come visit us here in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> Portland is a, a beautiful city. I have uh, enjoyed every minute so far, and um, I hope to come back often. Thank you. Thank you for joining our important discussion as we attempt to hashtag Let's Fix Healthcare. Please subscribe to our podcast and let us know what you think. For more information on the work we do at Custom Benefit Solutions, visit our website at www.custombenefits.work.